Well, hello and welcome once again to Raging and Eating. This is Rossi, better known as Chef Rossi, owner and executive chef of the Raging Skillet. And how the hell are you? Well, it certainly has been hot, right? I mean, almost like everywhere. We just had the hottest day. What did they? I heard it on the news. I couldn't believe it. The hottest day in the history of humanity or something. And I was like, holy moly, when do you hear that kind of thing? And crazy weather. We had a tornado in Montreal. I mean, whoa. So I just got back from Montreal. And luckily, we got there the day after the tornado. Although I have to say, the sick part of me kind of wanted to see it. But of course, I didn't want to get killed. But, you know, what can I say? I do kind of like seeing things like that. But seeing it on the news, maybe that's a little safer. Anyway... We just got back from Montreal, and I did some marathon eating. My girlfriend and I, forget it. We're just going to be eating salad every day for the rest of our life to make up for everything we ate in Montreal. But it was pretty amazing. If you have a chance, get your tushy over there. Maybe lose five pounds before you go, and then you can really chow down. It was amazing because even like the cheapo, crappy-looking restaurants were great. I mean, I think... Even their McDonald's was kind of fancy-schmancy in a way. Like it said something like Cafe McDonald's or something. I was talking to a friend of mine from Montreal, and she said, yeah, even the McDonald's is better there. So I don't know. I don't know what that means, but it's a good place to do some eating. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, then I came back to New York City to deal with Chazarai And I just kind of noticed a lot of things that were different. So you know how I'm always complaining about the bike messengers that almost kill me 5,000 times a day? Like it says walk, and it's a stoplight, and the cars all have the decency to stop. And I've gotten smart enough to look and make sure there's no jerk bicyclist coming a million miles an hour. But if I don't look both ways, I almost get killed because there'll be a jerk uh, bicyclist going a million miles an hour going the wrong way. Just crazy. But when I was in Canada, it didn't happen. I mean, when it said stop and when it was a red light and when the sign said you can walk and the pedestrians walked, the people on the bikes actually did the most astonishing thing. They stopped and waited for the light to change and the pedestrians to stop walking. I mean, so that's a crazy thing, right? But that makes me know it can be done. So I'm not saying, look, America, I'm not saying you have to emulate Canada, but New York and Rome and Israel and all the places where you can get killed 5,000 times a day by a car or a bike, maybe you should be emulating Canada, at least in this way. I mean, for crying out loud. Bike messengers, look, I know you're in a rush. I know the faster you are, the more money you make, but come on, you're going to get killed or kill somebody. So chill the F out. I didn't say it. I just said F because I'm a good little girl. So I got back and, of course, immediately threw myself into work because I'm a wedding caterer and a mitzvah caterer. That's bar mitzvahs and bas mitzvahs. So that means you never really can, like, disconnect You know, you can go away, you could go to a resort somewhere on an island and think you're checking out, but really you can't. You got to check your emails every day. And people come up with some crazy stuff that they got to know right away. 
you know, my wedding is not for a year and a half, but I really need to know if we're going to have Yukon gold potato salad or red bliss potato salad. Kind of crazy, right? But it happens. Anyway, so I've been back cranking it out, getting it all together. And I can't complain too much because in a little while, I'll be turning around and going to my favorite place in the universe. And you know what that is, right? You don't know? Well, okay, look, I love Montreal. And I love Hasbury Park, New Jersey. And I loved, what else do I love? Well, there's a few places in Florida I love, but I just don't like the dude is in charge right now. And I love Savannah. Savannah, I love you. And uh, I kind of sort of loved San Francisco, and I sort of loved Santa Monica, but not the rest of L.A., just Santa Monica, because the rest of L.A. was too cray-cray for me. And I sort of loved Palm Beach. I mean, there's a bunch of things like that. But my favorite place in the world is Provincetown. That's right, Provincetown, Massachusetts. So to all you who are listening to me in Provincetown, Massachusetts, I love you. Well, I love the town. I don't know if I love you. It's possible I don't know you. It's possible I know you and I don't love you. But it's also possible that I love you. But I do love Provincetown. So I'm all excited to go back to my favorite place in the world. But it doesn't mean that I'm not mad at Provincetown. I'm mad at Provincetown for getting too rich for its britches for getting too expensive and too unaffordable and making it impossible for people who are not rich to spend quality time there in a decent place. So you got to do something about that because we need our artists and we need our writers and we need people who are not mega millionaires to be there because if it's just going to be the richy riches in the Emerald City, well, who's going to be your waiter? Hmm? Who's going to be your bartender? Who's going to paint the paintings that you want to go look at? You know, so I'm not saying go socialist or communist, but I'm saying maybe you could chill out with the greed just a little bit for crying out loud. I mean, life's so short, you know, and it's not just Provincetown. God, it's everywhere. COVID just sort of made everything expensive. Places that used to be really affordable, like Kingston, New York, used to get some major deals in Kingston, New York. Not anymore. Jersey Shore used to get some great deals in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And I love that Asbury Park is finally happening. They've been trying for a long time. But no more deals in Asbury Park, New Jersey. No more deals anywhere near Woodstock. No more deals anywhere near Provincetown, anywhere on the Cape that I'm aware of. If you know something I don't know, fill me in. It used to be you could get some deals in the North Fork. So you'd say, I'm not going to go to the snoochy Hamptons. I'm going to go to the North Fork instead. Like, I love Greenport. Not anymore. So I don't know where the hell you have to go to get a deal. But uh, I don't know. Maybe you got to leave America. It's kind of cray-cray, right? So I suppose you might be able to get a deal in Montreal. Hmm. Think about that. I think there were a few deals you could still get in Savannah, Georgia. And that place is happening, I got to tell you. I fell in love with Savannah, Georgia. If you're listening to me and you're in Georgia or South Carolina or anywhere over there, get your tushy over to Savannah, Georgia. It just is great. What I loved about Savannah, Georgia is I loved how mystical and cool it was. Like you could be in front of a house that was a couple hundred years old. But there's kind of dark, mystical, edgy, funky thing underneath it all. That's why they have 5,001 ghost tours. 
But I think most of the ghost tours are a big pile of poop. You know, they're spinning a lot of tall tales. And the truth of the matter is a really lot of dark, bad, funky stuff happened in Savannah. So maybe this family is seven, eight, nine, ten generations from Savannah. Maybe they have a big, giant house and many millions of dollars. But in the beginning, a lot of those families made all that money on slavery. That's right. And a lot of the ancestors of some of those families were torturing and raping and and doing horrible things to people, to human beings. So that's the dark underbelly. Of course, not just Savannah, like all over the South. We know that. But somehow in Savannah, it's like woven into the fabric. So it's got like the dark, funky, ghouly past, but then it's got all that Southern food and hospitality now. It's a weird combination. Just like the way New Orleans has got all these weird layers. So there's been terrible things, murders and slavery and wars and all kinds of things. And you got people from all over, from Spain, from Italy, from the Arcadians, from Canada. You know, so many people mixing in to make this melting pot of amazing food. So I guess I have to say, I get attracted to places that are multi-dimensional, that have all kinds of layers. And maybe there's a dark layer in the past of slavery and murder and rape and mayhem and terrible, terrible, terrible things. But then later on, there's goodness and love. And maybe later on, there's a gay community. And later on, there's an artist community. All those layers make for a spicy mix, you know? Uh, I guess I'm a little inspired because I just read a book about Savannah called Kingdoms of Savannah. I do recommend it. And I forget his name. I got to go look it up. I can never remember anyone's name. You know that about me. That's why when I was bartending, I had to call everyone Honey Sweetie Baby. But he's the guy who started the moth. You know the moth where you get up and you tell a story for five minutes? And I think he started it in his living room and it just took off from there. And now it's like a worldwide thing. It's everywhere. Now, I've done the moth three times. I love it. I would keep on doing it, but I guess I have a life I have to catch up on, too. And I love that whole idea of just getting up and telling a story. Because storytelling really kind of had been a lost art, you know, especially with, like, smartphones and smart TVs and no one's reading anymore and everything's an attention deficit program. You know, that's how people are living you ask someone how they are, and if they take more than five minutes to answer, you're out the door, you know? And what happened to all the great storytellers? I mean, that's an amazing thing. It used to be we didn't have a TV, and maybe we had a radio if we were lucky. And we got by telling stories, telling stories around the fire. Your parents would tell stories. I grew up listening to stories. My mother loved to tell stories about her family about the people she grew up with. She loved to tell stories about her mother. Her mother, that'd be my grandmother Lillian, was the neighborhood advice giver. She was a very large woman. She was Jewish, but she really looked Italian. And she would sit on her front porch in her big house dress, probably in a rocking chair, as I recall. And people would just come, like the way you would come to maybe a gypsy for advice. They would come to try to get advice from her. And she gave some really great advice. So one day this woman comes crying that her husband is beating her. And she doesn't want to leave him, especially back then. This is, I think, 
the 1950s or maybe the 40s, I'm not sure. But back then, if a woman would leave her husband, you know, she really wasn't going to do that well. She couldn't run out and get a job and take care of herself so easily. So women had to stay in a lot of crappy marriages. And this woman had a bad one because she still managed to love her husband, but he was beating her. It was a terrible thing. So my grandmother Lillian went into the kitchen and she came out with a big wrought iron, a cast iron skillet. And have you ever held a cast iron skillet? I mean, whoa, we're talking heavy. And she gives this woman her cast iron skillet. She said, this is my favorite skillet. I've had it for many, many years. It's well seasoned, so I don't want to lose it. So please do return to me when you're done. But you hang on to it as long as you need to. Now, the next time that husband of yours hits you, you take that cast iron skillet out. She told her to hide it under her pillow. And you hit him good right upside the head. You know, try not to kill him, but otherwise give him a good smack. Let me know how it goes. So my grandmother Lillian didn't see the woman for a while. And she's like, oh, God, she didn't take my advice. Heavy Yiddish accent. Oi, she didn't take my advice. She's still getting beaten by that horrible man. Oh, I vey, oi vey, oi vey. Well, the woman shows up a couple weeks later, very happy. She hands my grandmother Lillian the cast iron skillet, and she says, thank you very much. Everything is perfect. We're very, very happy now. And her husband never once ever hit her again. So there you go chalk went up for my grandmother Lillian, right? So many years later, when I started a business called The Raging Skillet, I kind of forgot about that. And I also forgot about an experience I had with a skillet way quite some time ago when I was in my 20s. But um, my nephew reminded me, he said, Aunt Rossi, this isn't your first raging skillet, is it? And he, I guess he didn't, I didn't realize that he knew the family story, but in fact he did. So when he was a little baby, um, his father at the time was threatening him, like over his crib with his hand ready to hit him. And I couldn't have that. I mean, this is a little baby we're talking about. So I grabbed a skillet that happened to be hanging in the kitchen and hit him upside the head. And that solved the problem quite nicely. I think, um, my nephew was fine and didn't get hit again, and his father behaved himself, and the skillet survived to make eggs the next day. And years later, I started a business called The Raging Skillet. So what's the moral of the story? Hmm. Well, I'm not exactly telling you to be violent, but I do think having a cast iron skillet is a good thing for many reasons. You get some nice color in the food, and if anyone's hitting you, you can give them a good smack. You know what I mean? My grandmother Lillian was very smart. She was also really cray-cray. I think she had some major OCD. She had her kids like down on their hands and knees cleaning the floor with a toothbrush. I mean, major OCD. I didn't know about that until I was in my 20s. My aunt told me about that. And I always wondered why it was that my mother was really allergic to cleaning the house. I mean, she was quite a hoarder. So I think what happened was that she had to be so clean growing up that that was her revenge. But the OCD works both ways. And so my mother didn't clean the house and became a hoarder, but it's kind of like two sides of the same dime, you know what I mean? But my grandmother Lillian was a fantastic advice giver. So again, one day, this woman comes up to her, a different woman, 
very sad and very unhappy. And she's an old lady and she's feeble and she's crying. And she goes to talk to my grandmother Lillian. And she says, you know, she saved money. Her husband died and she inherited what he had and she saved money her whole life. And she managed to put it aside. And, um, you know, she figured that her kids would take care of her for in her old, old years. And she had three kids. They were full grown and they talked her into, they said, mom, don't wait till you die to give the money away to us because then it'll be like lawyer fees and all kinds of things. So they talked her into giving them all of her money while she was alive. And so she did just that. She emptied out her bank account and she gave all of her money to her three kids. Well, once they got all her money, they promptly stopped visiting her and stopped calling her. I mean, what a bunch of rotten brats, right? This poor little old lady, now she's very poor and her kids aren't calling her and visiting her and she's lonely and scared and really depressed. I think she was thinking that she didn't want to live at all. So my grandmother Lillian said, do you have any money left? And the woman said, yes, well, I have enough to get me by for a little bit. And my grandmother Lillian said, well, I'll tell you what you do. You go out and you buy yourself a brand new coat, something very expensive, a brand new outfit. You get your hair done. You act like you have a fortune. And when your kids come by and see you looking all fancy rich, you apologize to them and say, I'm so sorry I lied to you and I'm having a lot of trouble dealing with that. But in fact, I didn't give you all my money. I really hung on to the bulk of it because I just didn't trust you. And I'm sorry about that. Well, you tell them that and you do that and you see what happens. Well, she's like, well, I can't lie to my children. She's like, they're going to have to make an exception. So the old lady listened to her. And she went out and she got her hair done. She got a coat. She got an outfit. She got all fancy schmancy. She went out to dinner. The kids came around like, what is going on? And she said, I'm so sorry, my darlings. I wasn't exactly honest. The major bank account, I never emptied it out. And um, the kids were like, oh, well, do you want to do that now? She said, no, no, I, I think I'll do that after I'm gone. I'm making some good interest now. Well, from that point on, the kids started visiting her every day, taking her out to dinner, taking her to get her hair done, being the best children children can be for the rest of her life. And when she got very sick towards the end, they were by her bed. They made sure she was getting the best care. I mean, they doted on her hand and foot. She went to see my grandmother Lillian and thanked her profusely. And when she did finally pass away, those rotten brats found out that they didn't inherit any more money. And that, in fact, all they got to inherit was not having a guilt complex for being a jerk to their mother. But I do kind of love that story. So if you have kids, don't give them all your money while you're alive, all right? Hang on to some of it, you know? It's just sort of human nature. Just listen to my grandmother Lillian on that one. You know what I mean? Anyway, I guess I find myself in this position, too. I'm always giving advice. Like, people call me up all the time you know, as a wedding caterer. And I always tell them, you don't just get a chef and a caterer, you get a Jewish mother. And half the time I give them advice, even though I know they can't afford me because I'm a great caterer, but I'm not a cheap caterer. I'm not an expensive one either. I think I'm slightly above average, as they say. But sometimes people call me up and they just have no money at all. And 
in the old days I would do their wedding anyway and not make any money and slave, you know, and, you know, kill myself for a week and not make a penny. But now I'm not doing that anymore because I have a life and I've paid my dues. So when I'm on the phone with someone and it becomes very, very apparent that they can't afford me whatsoever, I say, look, it's pretty clear I'm not going to be your caterer. I'm sorry about that. But I tell you what, you can call me up anytime for advice and I'll, I'll help you. If you're going to sign a contract with another caterer and you need me to look at it, I'll still be your Jewish mother. And they can't believe it. And, I, you know, people who know me can't believe it either. But I do feel I save people from having lots of bad things happen to them. So it kind of makes me feel good about myself, you know. But when I'm really in a pickle is when I have someone calling me up for advice who's about to hire a caterer that I know for a fact is terrible, really a terrible caterer. Usually it's like if they have no money and they're hiring the cheapest caterer, well, it doesn't take a brain scientist to figure out that the cheapest caterer is probably not the best caterer. Like there's a reason they're the cheapest. So, but I can't badmouth anyone because it's not my thing. And it's also sort of low class to badmouth another caterer, you know, like it's kind of like, eh, you know, it's not my style. So what I do is I tell them, do your due diligence. Find, research the caterer, see what people say about them, um, meet them, taste their food, you know, just make a really educated decision. And also I'd add, you know, but just remember in this business more than most, you do get what you pay for. So if a wedding is half the price of the cheapest caterer, there might be a good reason for that. So, you know, just kind of check it all out. You know what I mean? Now, why do you need to hear all that? How boring is that for you? Well, I guess I would say if some deal just seems too good to be true, very often it really is too good to be true. But it could also be that you looked really gorgeous the day that you went into the used car dealership and the guy who was selling the cars took one look at you and fell in love and wanted to give you a good deal. You never know. Stranger things have happened, right? So here I am back in the saddle getting ready to come to Provincetown, thank God. But it's still working, still cranking it out, trying not to get killed by bike messengers. And who do I find myself thinking about? I find myself thinking about my grandmother Lillian. So I never got to meet her because all my grandparents died before I was born. I always felt so jealous of the kids that would get to spend time with their grandparents. And if you get to spend time or with your grandparents or you have, it's like a great gift because I would have understood my parents so much more. If I could have talked to my mother's parents, I would have really known what she was like growing up and as a little girl. I could have talked to my father's parents. I would have known what he was like as a young man. So I only knew what he was like based on what he said, which was next to nothing because he was a Jewish husband, but mostly what my mother said, which wasn't exactly, you know, something I could count on because she made it sound like he was great from the day he was born because she loved the guy, you know, but I happened to know from a few other relatives that he was sort of a chain smoking bad guy and my mother's parents were not happy about her marrying him. So, you know, now, if I met her parents, they would have been like, we don't like him, he smokes, and we think he was loose with women. I mean, who knows what they would have said, you know? So, if you have some grandparents, hooray for you. And if you are a grandparent, hooray for your grandkids. 
because it's really fun as a grandparent to give them the full scoop on what their parents were like as kids. You know, you can also spend some time embarrassing them, you know? So I didn't get to meet my grandparents, but I did get to meet my Uncle Pete, who was old enough to be my mother's father and in some ways was a part-time father for her. And he told me a lot about my mother. He told me that she was the cutest girl she was. I knew that. She was the cutest girl in town and that talent agents were always trying to give her a deal because she looked just like Shirley Temple. So I think they were thinking she could be the next Shirley Temple, except for the fact that she couldn't sing or dance. I know, and I don't think she could act. I'm not entirely sure Shirley Temple could act, though. She just was so cute. But it was kind of cool to hear, hear that stuff, you know? And as my mother got older, I think she sort of froze as a little girl in a lot of ways. Because as an older woman, she still liked to wear her hair in pigtails. And I remember when I saw that movie, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, I kind of thought it reminded me of my mother a little bit. You know, not in the trying to kill Joan Crawford part, you know, or what was it, she killed a bird or something and put it in her dinner. Like, not in that part, but in the Baby Jane part. And my mother still liked to sing little kid songs throughout the rest of her life. She would sing songs I never heard anyone sing anywhere else. And we would sing along to them. Later on, I thought about them. Like, there was a song my mother used to sing, and I would have thought maybe she made it up, but she said she didn't. I think it was a song that she heard and latched onto when she was little. So it went like this. I love myself, I think I'm grand When I go to the movies I hold my hand I put my arm around my waist When I get fresh I slap my face See, I sing about as well as my mother, right? So I was like, I would sing that all the time When I get fresh I slap my face I thought it was so great, right? But as I got old I said What is this song really about, you know? Is this really a song about, like, masturbation, for instance? Is that what it's about? I don't know. You just got to think about those things, you know? And then there was another song my mother used to sing about um, a Jewish girl who was the daughter of a rabbi who fell in love with a Christian boy and wanted to marry him. And the um, song was about how that would break her father's heart. And I think my mother used to sing the song all the time because she was terrified that her children might one day marry someone who wasn't Jewish. That was like her greatest fear. So it was really interesting. She wasn't terrified that I might be gay. She wasn't terrified that I might get into drugs and alcohol and cigarettes. She wasn't terrified that I might run away from home. She wasn't terrified that I might dye my hair pink. She wasn't terrified of any of those things. She didn't like them, not terrified of them, but she was terrified that I might marry a Christian boy. Kind of crazy, right? So in fact, I would say um, when I got around to telling her that I was gay, I didn't even really say I was gay. I said I was with the woman that she'd met several times. She handled it pretty well. I mean, this is a woman who would have sat shiva for me if I'd married a Christian boy. And in fact, I was living with a woman from Grenada, or Grenada, 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 potatoes, potato. And she, her answer was like, oh, well, I knew that. A mother always knows. It's just as natural to go one way as the other. I mean, it was pretty cool. I was like, oh my God, this is the woman who grounded me for six weeks when she found my Marlboro lights. She was handling that really well. 
But of course, she did offer to send me to conversion therapy so I could be fixed. So maybe she wasn't handling it so well. You know, I've been rattling on. I don't think I said anything about food. I was on a roll. Oh, my God. Well, I guess I have to give you a recipe, right? Well, I already told you about the Putin. I think Putin is how you say it. So I'm going to just give you some advice. You make grilled cheese sandwiches, right? I like to put the butter on the outside and put two slices of cheddar cheese inside and put it in a skillet and sear, sear both sides, right? But I also like to spread some mayo on one side on the inside, some mustard on the other side on the inside. You know that already. But what I didn't tell you is if you put something in between the two slices of cheese, I prefer cheddar myself, it gets really exciting. Like you can put bacon in between the two slices of cheese. You can put pastrami. You can make a kind of a Jewish grilled cheese, not kosher, but hey, you could put pastrami in there. That's really exciting. You can put slices of tomato in there. You could put smoked turkey in there. If you do the turkey, I would say make a Swiss cheese grilled cheese sandwich, and then you're kind of getting into the croque monsieur. And with the ham, it's a croque, that's croque monsieur, and croque madame is the turkey one, I think. Anyway, that was just a little quickie food thing because I got so carried away I forgot to talk about food. But you know what can I say? I'm not a spring chicken. This is Rossi, better known as Chef Rossi. And as always, food is love and so are you.